And our kids kindergarten through second grade, if you want to make your way out to the library for your time, let's see. And for everybody else, if you uh, either have your Bible or have the, the handout that we had, this is uh, printed up as Exodus chapter 3. So we're going to be last week, this week, and next week, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4. And there's three different stages. We're looking at how do you have a life-changing encounter with the living God. And so this is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible and all of world literature. It's Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. And last week we looked at some of the pieces that need to be in place to have that encounter. This week we're going to look at who you encounter. We're going to look at it from God's perspective. And then next week we're going to look at it from Moses' perspective. But it's important to remember that in, es in essence Exodus 1 through 6 is one big literary unit. It, it's, a, it's a block. And the stories in the first part of Exodus speak to us in our times of greatest and most urgent need. They're speaking to a people in the moment when they're most tempted to say, God, where are you? God, why? Why me? Have you forgotten us? Have you forsaken us? Say, why me? Why now? This doesn't make sense. So I want you, you know, you don't live in that kind of place, but I want you to think. I think every person over the age of about 11 in this room has had a time in their life where they cried out, God, like, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Why this person? So take yourself back to that time in your life and kind of enter into emotionally. That's what Exodus 1 through 6 is all about. And what it wants to do is in a very quiet and somewhat subtle way wants to remind us when we're asking those questions, why have you forgotten us? Why have you forsaken us? It wants to remind us, even though it might seem that way now, that's not true. God hasn't forgotten. He hasn't forsaken. Despite all appearances, his promises are sure and his purposes will be accomplished. Now in the first part uh, that we're going to see in 1 through 6, there's two things that God has to overcome to achieve his, his purposes. Uh, one is the, the discouragement of the people. They're just so battered down that they can't even believe his word of promise that he's going to do something. So the people's reluctance and their discouragement, but also even Moses, his own sense of insecurity and inadequacy been shocked going back through this, how Moses has at this point in chapter 3 and chapter 4 almost this paralyzing sense of insecurity. And you can even trace it through the questions where he asks. Chapters 3 and chapter 4, one of the longest dialogues in the entire Bible between God and a person. And so the way I have it printed out, this is just chapter 3. And then next week we'll have chapter 4 kind of added so you can see. But it's really helpful to see... Um, the, the, the dynamic back and forth. And so I got uh, Moses in, in somewhat of a green, greenish color, and then God is the red letters. And then you can see this dynamic back and forth. But when you just look at what Moses says, I mean, first there's this response of like, oh, well, who am I? You know, I'm not the man you need. I'm unqualified. 
And then he responds, well, what shall I say to them? I don't have the, the knowledge, the skills I need. I'm inadequate. And then he says, but then they're not going to listen to me. I'm going to fail. I don't have what it takes. And then he responds uh, next time, well, I'm not eloquent. So I either don't have the knowledge I need or I don't have the skills I need. And then finally, he just says, all right, please send someone else. I don't want to do it. So now I'm not qualified, I'm unqualified, and I'm unwilling. And then in between, I'm unskilled and then don't have what it takes to accomplish that. So just remarkable insecurity. So we're going to look at that more next week, how God overcomes that, because uh, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, one of the things that uh, God does is he's going to overcome that. And he doesn't overcome it by arguing with Moses in a puff-up-his-self-esteem fashion. When Moses says, I don't have what it takes, God doesn't say, oh, yes, you do. Oh, look, let's look at all your qualities. I mean, man, you, you've got it. I mean, you are smart enough. You're, you're good enough. I mean, people like you. You can do this. Uh, he basically, yeah, you're right. You don't have what it takes. And that's utterly beside the point. Because if all you have is Exodus 1 through 6, it even ends in despair and discouragement and disappointment. And Moses even goes back. He's very reluctant. Okay, I'll go. He goes back to the elders. He goes to Pharaoh. He tells them what God tells him to say. And then everything gets worse. Not only does it not get better, it gets worse. And it's almost like the ultimate, see, I told you I didn't want to do this, but you made me. And then now it's worse. But before we get there, we want to look at, all right, what's God's kind of solution to this situation? Moses' deep insecurity, the people's deep discouragement, and his solution lies in a reorientation of where they're looking. See, Moses is looking and saying, well, uh, what about me? I don't have what it takes. And God say, irrelevant. The people are looking and they're saying, well, look at Pharaoh. Look how strong he is. And God says, it's irrelevant. God says, what matters is you look at me. I am calling you to a position of trust, and you're going to have to trust in my purpose, trust in my promise, trust in my power, and ultimately trust in my presence. See, there has to be a transformation because in chapter 3 and 4, Moses is saying, I can't, so I won't. And then the people are saying, he won't, Pharaoh, Pharaoh won't, so we can't. And the transition has to be, all right, Moses, I can't. Yahweh will, so I will. And the people's transitions, all right, Pharaoh won't, but Yahweh will, so we will. And the whole transformation begins with them hearing and understanding God's name. So that's what we're going to camp out on this morning, his name. And even that kind of like, what does it mean to know or even say Someone's name, saying their name. I mean, you can think of the, the idea of the name kind of filters out into our popular culture a couple years ago during the <clears throat> kind of social upheaval and after uh, Breonna Taylor. You remember one of the, the taglines was, say her name, say her name. You think, all right, what are, what are they saying there? Say her name. Or in your head right now might be Beyonce's voice <laughs> encouraging her boyfriend to say my name and you might can guess what's going on there to generate that say my name 
Sometimes athletes, Bryce Harper does this sometimes. After he'll hit a home run, he'll pound his chest and run around the base and say, what's my name? And I've never understood that. Uh, you say, well, I, I don't understand the question or how it fits to this scenario. But sorry, what's, what's, say my name, make a name. We'll say somebody's doing something to try and make a name for themselves. So it all begins in the name. And you know different people, you, you have different names. So for example, your doctor, you know, your, the patients might call him doctor, and then his friends might call him John, and then the kids will call him dad, and then the wife might call him honey. And so you all have different names, and there's an appropriateness to the, the dynamic of the relationship, which name you use. And some of that has been lost because we live in just almost this like obnoxiously informal culture. When we moved to a new town to, um, from Atlanta out into the, it was the country at the time, to Loganville, I was in fifth grade. And uh, my first little league team that I was on, uh, one of the, the boys' dads, who we became really good friends, and his dad was ex-military. And then his dad eventually became the principal of our high school, and another, another one of the little, one of the guys that came, one of my really good friends, they had known each other their whole life, and he got us so excited because we were on their team, and he kind of runs up, and he sees them, and he goes, hey, Gary, and Mr. Hobbs looked at that fifth grader and said, you may call me coach, or you may call me sir. And we both stopped, and then he starts fumbling, uh, y yes, sir, coach, uh, Mr. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there's a certain kind of decorum. There's a certain uh, appropriateness that you call this person uh, this name. And in the Bible, you know, personal names, the personal name, indicated something essential about who that person was, their identity or the origins of their, you know, their life, their birth, their circumstances, or the divine purposes behind their life, but there was something profound and special about the personal name. So God even changes many names. It's often the case that when God's going to do something powerful to someone, he gives them a, a new name. It's like Abram becomes Abraham because you're going to be the father of a multitude or Isaac's name means laughter, delight, celebrating that the just uh, unimaginable way that God accomplishes his promises, or Moses' name is one that's saved, drawn up from the water, and, and he's going to do that for his people. Or David, his name is the beloved one, or Malachi is my messenger. Or some names talk about what God's going to do. So Joshua, the name of the game, Jesus, it's Yeshua, Yahweh, saves. He's the savior. Or Isaiah is it kind of in reverse. It's salvation belongs to Yahweh, to God, or Michael, who is like our God. In fact, one of the primary ways of faith was passed down from one generation to the next was through the name. So kids, here's a question you can ask on your bulletin. You can figure out or fill out. Do you know what your name means? What does your name mean? And one thing you can ask your parents, either for lunch or sometime this afternoon, uh, tell me the story behind my name. What does it mean? Where does it come from? When I first met Cynthia, one of the things I found is that she kept in her purse a running list. One side was top 10 favorite baby girl names. The other side was top 10 favorite baby boy names. So I made a mental note. All right, this is something very important to her. 
and all I've asked was just, all right, just veto power. But for, for the most part, I, lo I love the list. It's, it's a wonderful list. So names. And then even in throughout Genesis, as it grows and develops, what you see progressing in Genesis is first you have the kind of generic Canaanite name for God, El. And then there's these encounters where you learn, all right, this is what God's like, but this is more like his, his job titles or this is what he does. So like El Roy, R-O-I, is the God who sees. And Hagar learns, she learns that he sees. And then El Shaddai, this is when God Almighty, this is when repeated to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that I've given promises and I'm, I'm the God who is almighty. I can accomplish these things that I've said I'm going to accomplish. Or El Elyon, the God who is the most high, he's the high one above all others. Or El Olam, the everlasting from the first to the last, and sometimes they're connected to a place. This is the, the God of Bethel or the God of Abraham, the God of our fathers. But what we see in Exodus chapter 3 is something utterly transformative. It's where God calls Moses into his presence and he says, I'm going to tell you my personal name. This is my name. And I was uh, been intrigued going back through this, and uh, one of my professors in seminary who I I'm biased, but thinks one of the greatest living theologians and one of the greatest of the 20th century is named John Frame. And he wrote this large uh, four-volume books on the Lordship, where he takes this divine name, the Lord, and then unpacks it over 3,126 pages. I thought this week I'd skim through some of it to bring you some good nuggets, but didn't make it too far. <laughs> but over 3,200 pages of unpacking the depth and the implications and the meaning for how we know the Lord and who he is and the word of the Lord and the Christian life as we live faithful to this Lord. And you see this name, Yahweh, that we'll see in a moment, is used six, over 6,800 times just in the Old Testament. So this is how God wants to be known. So let's kind of walk through it. In one sense, God is introducing himself to Moses but it's somewhat of a, a strange introduction. It's like, hello, I am, I am. That's what the name is and means. So let's kind of walk through what I've printed up here. There's a couple different ways, reason why it's printed this way is there's some things that uh, I kind of want you to see and notice and have put in. Because one of the things, uh, Yahweh, the name, in most English Bibles, it's, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's letting you know that it's that unique divine name. But sometimes you, you can, uh, like when I read, often it doesn't connect with me that that's the, the personal name. In fact, one thing started just doing two weeks ago, and it's been really intriguing, but there's a new, um, it's called the Legacy Standard Bible. It's a, a update of the New American Standard 1995 edition. But one of the unique things that the editors do there is every time this word for Yahweh is in the Old Testament, they put it as Yahweh instead of the Lord. And then you read through, and it's, it's really uh, enlightening. So I've enjoyed reading that. So I try and do a little bit of that here. Uh, so let's pick up. Sorry, I didn't mark it, but uh, now Moses was keeping the flock. So look at that. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of, of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see. 
So God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place of which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land. Uh, out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So now come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. So that's a strange construction. That's just the verb, like, to be. There's all types of different ways to translate that. It can be very mysterious. It's using that construction. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name from generation to generation. This is my name. This is how I want to be made known. This is my personal name, not generic title, but this is who I am. So go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I indeed care about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wondrous deeds that I will do in the midst of it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. Thus you shall plunder the Egyptians." So there's a lot there to unpack, but what I want to focus on primarily is just that declaration of the name, that introduction. And you notice at the very the top of the page, there's this progression, kind of a movement. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. Thus you shall say, Yahweh, the God of our fathers, this is my name, my name forever. The first time he just says, I am. And this is the only time in the whole Bible that this expression is expressed this way. And just on the surface of it, it seems like a, almost a deliberative non-answer. It's this kind of very mysterious response. 
But what, the, what then I love is then he then walks through, and do you notice there's four different times where he says, you will say this. And you know, Moses' objection is, well, if I go to them, what am I supposed to say? And then God says, well, here, this is what you're supposed to say. Three different categories of audience. You go and you say this to the people, the sons of Israel, and then you say this to the elders, and then you say this to Pharaoh. So I'm telling you what you're supposed to say. But that, that key is that, that name. It all revolves around the name. And if you remember from the introduction to Exodus in Hebrew, the name for the book of Exodus is not Exodus. It's the name, the names, the important things about understanding who this God is and who we are. So that name, that Yahweh is, the, it's most often translated into English as the Lord. But again, sometimes we can kind of get misused because that might sound like a title or job description. But in many ways, it's the, the personal name. So we'll just take a few minutes as we wrap up just to kind of meditate and dwell. Like, what does that name mean? What's the, the point? This is the central kind of name by which God wants to be no, known. And you could summarize, I mean, the Bible's a big book. I mean, it's not as big as my professor's lordship series, but the Bible's still a big book, over a thousand pages, over a couple thousand years written, comp uh, compiled. You think, I, how can, could you summarize it in a sentence or two? And he makes a pretty compelling case that you could summarize the entire Old Testament as Yahweh is the Lord, and summarize the entire New Testament as Jesus is the Lord. And those are the two core confessions, both of the people of Israel in the Old Testament and Deuteronomy 6. I mean, this is the core confession. Hear, O Israel, and you remember the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it's this word, Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, uh, your God, uh, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. And Paul's playing on that same word in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Lord. And so that's going to be the fundamental thing that God wants us to know about himself. And Exodus is all about unpacking that. We'll see when we get to chapter 6. He says, you know, to your fathers I revealed myself as God Almighty. Now I'm about to reveal myself as as Yahweh, the God who is present. And when he gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, I am. It's Yahweh. I am the Lord, God, Yahweh Almighty, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now here's the things that you are to do. And then we'll look at Exodus 34, kind of the culminating passage where it says, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, slow, uh, compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is filling out. This is who he is. And in that big 3,000 page, four volumes, one of the things that uh, Professor Frame kind of unpacks is you can kind of summarize. You look at all the different things that the Bible says about who God is and you can kind of summarize it into uh, three things. So you you can tell one of the reasons why I love it so much, because it's all reduced down to three. And it's the Lord's control. What does it mean that he's the Lord? It means he's in control, he's the authority, and then he is present, his presence. 
And so that's what they're going to learn in Egypt, that he's in control. The forces of nature, the forces of history, all of that is under his control. And it's very different from us. And that's one of the things. In times of distress and discouragement, that's what it seems like everything is spinning out of control. And this is why the name can be so precious to us. Because it's a continual reminder that he's still in control. So the Lord is in control. But also the Lord has the authority. He, he speaks and he is meant to uh, be obeyed. He gives promises and they're going to come to pass. He's the one who gives his authoritative word. We're going to see the real dynamic comes because when Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, Yahweh has met with us and uh, we want to go three days out into the wilderness so we can worship him. And he says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And so that's the, the dynamic. He, he's not the boss of me. Look, here in this realm, I'm the authority. But one of the dynamics that means that he is the Lord, what we're confessing is that you are the one who has delivered your authoritative word, and we humbly, joyfully receive it. We come under it. And that's, that's good news, because like what the psalmist, the, 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 the blessed person in Psalm 1, finds that it's a delight to meditate on the word of Yahweh, because in his word, we meditate day and night, and we become like streams that are fruitful in any season. It's a delight. And Peter will recognize the same life-giving dynamic from Jesus' authoritative words. Because uh, he tells him when other people are leaving and turning their back on Jesus, Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. These authoritative words bring life. But it's, he's in control, authority. But then it's also his presence. His word brings his presence. And this is the thing that God wants Moses to know and the people above, above all else. That's why he says, I will be with you. That's the answer to all of your objections. And it's such an encouraging, powerful thing just to run through all of the scriptures and see all the different times and places and scenarios and situations where God has promised his presence. Did a quick search and printed them all up and found just in the Old Testament 428 different verses where God is promising his presence. You know, one of his promises is that he will give you the grace you need in the time you need. But if you think about all the different types of grace you need in so many different situations, it can all be summarized by his presence. I mean, you look, that was the goal in Eden, that God was with them. And then you look at Revelation in 21. That's the goal of the new heavens and the new earth. When John sums it up, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. So his presence, his dwelling. And so often just in you know, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the way he's encouraging people in times of doubt and difficulty and discouragement and sorrow and uncertainty, he says, I will be with you. So when uh, Abraham is going to go, his promise is that I'm going to be with you. When uh, Isaac, he, he tells Isaac in Genesis 26, you're going to sojourn in this land and I will be with you to bless you. That was in the midst of drought. And then to uh, Jacob, he says, behold, I am with you in chapter 28 of Genesis and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. And again in 31, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred. I will be with you. 
And then he gives a promise to all the Jacob's sons in Genesis 46. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and then I'm going to bring you back. I will be with you. And before they go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 31, over and over, at the end of Moses' life, that's the note he wants to leave them with. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Be in dread of them because it's the Lord, it's Yahweh, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And again, it is Yahweh who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. And then again in chapter 31, and the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, be strong and courageous for you shall bring the people into Israel, the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. And of course, when Isaiah was given the great promise of the the Savior who's going to come. Remember the name that he gave. He says his name will be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so we sum up the name. We can sum it up by saying, you know, salvation, Jesus, his name means Yahweh saves. And the way Yahweh saves is through this person. Salvation is of the Lord. And more than any other event in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus shows us who it is that brings about that salvation. And that very name carries the very essence of who God is and what he wants to be known about him. And they'll culminate. There's such beautiful parallels between Moses and Exodus chapter 3 and then 33 and 34 uh, after they've come out of Egypt, they've gone up to the mountain. Moses has ascended to the mountain, and then he's come back down. And what he's actually found is the people have built a golden calf, and they're worshiping. And then if you've seen the movie, he slams the tablets down. They break. And then now I, I, we know that Yahweh is a God who is mighty and powerful and will crush his enemies, and he'll deliver his people. We've seen that. But now do, do we know that he'll forgive his people? Is he compassionate? Is he gracious? And then when God calls Moses into his presence again, the second time, and Moses asks to see his glory, and God says, nope, can't do that. I will let my, my goodness pass over you. He takes him, he puts him in the rock, and it says he proclaimed his name. And his name is Yahweh. Yahweh, the God who is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding, and this is another theologically loaded word, hesed, abounding in the steadfast love, this love that uh, never ends, abounding in steadfast love and truth, keeping that steadfast love for generation to generation, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgressions, forgiving sin. So he's gracious, compassionate, and he is forgiving. So the fundamental confession of the Old Testament is this Yahweh, he is the Lord, and the fundamental confession of the New Testament is that Jesus is the Lord. Control, authority, presence. Jesus, by his control, he destroys the powers of Satan and draws us to himself. By his authority, he speaks the words of life. And by his presence, he gives the same promise that Yahweh gives to his people. I will never leave you or forsake you. So we want to take a moment, we want to pause, and we want to remind ourselves, if you're in one of those seasons where you feel like, all right, why? Why is this happening? Season of disappointment, season of discouragement. You cling to the name. 
And if you're in a situation now, a season where you're not in that time or phrase, remember, this name is the strong tower and the refuge where you run when you are, and then you pray for those people who need to, to know and come to the name. So, Lord, we thank you for the gift of knowing your name. We thank you that, that you are who you are not who we would like you to be or who we wish you were, but who you are. And you have told us um, that you're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And we thank you for sending your son who uh, purchased redemption for us and poured out his spirit upon us so we can know and experience uh, you as those things. So we pray right now for anyone who uh, needs to experience you as those things. They feel just like the people of Israel felt in that time of incredible oppression and difficulty, asking, where is the Lord? We pray that you would be present for them. And as our attention is turned in the news and we've seen the conflict escalate in the Middle East and in Israel now, we pray, we pray for all of your people in the different areas who might be crying out, saying, where is the Lord? We pray that you would be present. We ask that you would help the, uh, our, our nation, their nation, the different leaders who are responsible for making uh, decisions. We pray that you would give them wisdom to know how to act wisely. But we, we uh, ultimately ask for your presence. We praise you that even in the midst of incredible difficulty, that you have the control and the authority to turn all things to your good. So as we look at international conflict and strife, we ask that you turn it somehow for your good. And even as we look and have it, you know, anyone in here experiencing personal, relational, small uh, conflict when compared on that scale, that you would turn it for good. But we give you thanks that we can know and encounter your son as all of these things. In his name we pray. Amen. So each week here at Trinity, we come to the Lord's table. This is Yahweh's table, the, the table of the Lord, and it symbolizes, and it's our weekly reminder of both his presence, his authority, his control, and his goodness. And part of the symbolism is that the blood, the cup, represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of your sins, and, and the, the bread represents my body that's broken for you. And one of the reasons we take it is it's a physical reminder of his promise to be present. You know, there is nothing that's closer to you than the things you actually eat. They become very close to you. And this is his promise that I promise to, to dwell with you and in you. So we have four different stations here at Trinity. The way we do, you come and you take the bread and you dip. And there's a gluten-free station in the back. And then the other three are normal. So once we're all in place, you come.